we are kind of turning the corner into the second half of our series on Colossians chapter 3. We've titled this series, Heavenly Minded and Earthly Good. And we started this out with the premise when Jesus addresses his followers and those that were coming to him in Matthew chapter 5 verse 13. He declares, you are the salt of the earth. And he says that salt has two main characteristics, it's savory and it's preservative. And so when we think about being the salt of the earth, we as believers in the world have a couple of functions. The first is, is to uh, be savory, to bring out the best in the world around us. And the second would be to be a preservative factor. Salt moves into the meat and it takes the water and the other things that would cause the meat to, to get nasty and uh, it keeps it So that it's edible. And we want to be preservative and salty. But he also says something really interesting in that passage. He says, if the salt has lost its saltiness, if it's no longer salty, if it's no longer different than the the things around it, then it's not really any good. And so we've been focusing on the words of Paul in the letter to the Colossians in chapter 3 about how we can be heavenly minded, setting our minds on the things above, setting our hearts on the things above, and earthly good. That we don't want to be so earthly-minded that we're no heavenly good, but we don't want to follow the Johnny Cash song that said, you're so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. So that's what we're doing. That's what we're talking about. A couple of weeks ago, we got this whole thing started um, when we looked at the first 11 verses of Colossians chapter 3. And this idea, the big idea from that service was that as we set our minds and our hearts on the things above, as we take off sin and as we are renewed um, and, and we want to be who we are, where we are, to everyone that we meet. So we want to be so heavenly-minded that we can't help but do earthly good to everyone that we encounter. And it's interesting, uh, there are a number of different ways that you can do that. The big three for me are read your Bible every single day, be in prayer and conversation with God about matters of mutual concern. That's the best definition for prayer I've ever heard, is matter, a conversation with God about matters of mutual concern. Be in prayer every day. And do something that directs your thoughts to God. For me, that's journaling. In fact, the last two weeks, I've meant to mention the What's True About You journals that we gave you at the end of that series. I hope that many of you have taken the opportunity to, to work through those. Some people said, you know, I did it for a couple of days and then I missed a couple of days, but I'm still plugging along. Others have shared that, that they've done it every day and that it was a wonderful experience and they're continuing to remind themselves who God says that they are. So those are the big three, but we also need to be doing things together. And so in the second week, we moved beyond uh, just what we do internally, and we talked about what it means to be heavenly-minded and earthly good at church, among our church family, and what does that look like. And so Paul addresses this church, and he says, you are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Therefore, put on, and he talked about some different characteristics that we put on, just like I put on the sport coat. And everybody knows that Pastor Mark's wearing a blue sport coat today. We should we should be as, as recognizable in our compassion and our humility and our patience and our gentleness and our, and, and, and our love that we put on over all of that. But he goes beyond those impressions that we make on each other and, and says, don't just look good from the outside. Make sure that you really are doing it, that you're bearing with each other, that you're forgiving each other. That the peace of Christ is ruling in your hearts and the word of God, the word of Christ is, is dwelling in you richly. And whatever we do, whether in word or deed, we do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So that's what we talked about last week and we talked about and don't fake it till you make it. Don't just act like a Christian. Be one. Be one. Be who you are 
and whose you are, wherever you are. Be the people of God together. So it starts with clothing. It starts with that immediate impression, and then it moves inward. Today, we're talking about being heavenly-minded and earthly good at home. There's a progression. Last week, we talked about being heavenly-minded and earthly good at church. This week, we'll talk about it at home. And next week, we'll talk about it in the workplace or in the marketplace or in the world as, as we encounter it. So today's title um, is, is talking about the home, and we're focusing on Paul's words. He has four verses that are directed at the husbands and wives and at the parents and children. So that's the home, the, the immediate family. And we want the home, just like I talked about last week, we wanted churches to be a place to build up and encourage and disciple each other. We want the home to be those things as well, to bring out the best, as we talked about being salt and light, that we draw out the best in each other, not a place to tear down or complain about each other or compete with each other. We want that to be the same at church as it is at home, that is a, a safe place. And so I would encourage you, husbands and wives, parents and children, put your elbows away. Just everybody tuck your elbows in. Because every now and then, when I'm preaching a sermon that talks to parents and talks to wives and talks to husbands, I'll see one of these, you know? I'll see, you know, and you're, you, you know, if you're anything like me, your, your ribs get a little bruised after a while, okay? So just keep the elbows, tuck them in, keep those chicken wings tucked in if you need to. Um, but put the elbows away because uh, we want to learn and we want to grow together. And I also want to address the singles, and I want to address the widows, and I want to address uh, people whose, whose family maybe wasn't very functional, wasn't what, what you would have hoped. There's compassion for that, and there's a, a recognition. But what we're going to be talking about today, and the principles that we'll be talking about today, while they speak directly into our home relationships, they really apply to all of our relationships. And if we'll learn to practice these principles in all of our relationships as is appropriate, then we'll certainly uh, have more fruitful, more positive relationships together. Our bottom line today, I'm going to give you early and then we'll come back to it at the end. But the bottom line is that a heavenly minded home can do a whole lot of earthly good. That if we are raised and, and we cultivate in our homes, in our families, in our immediate families and extended families, this idea of mutual submission and love and respect and encouraging each other and obeying each other and treating each other the way that we want to be treated, that's good. That's good for everyone we encounter. So our bottom line today is a heavenly-minded home can do a whole lot of earthly good. And if you have little ones, in your home, if you have children living in your home, uh, the, the environment that you cultivate in your home really matters. And we're going to be talking about that today. We're going to look at Colossians uh, chapter 3, verses 18 and 19 first. So if you want to turn to page 1834 in the Pew Bibles, I believe it's really important that you have a copy of God's Word open in your hands as we learn from it together. And so if you don't have one with you or don't have one on a digital device or something, you can pull one of those Bibles out and turn to page 1834. I'll read this passage, uh, these first two verses from the New International Version. And uh, here's what Paul says, as he builds upon the foundation that he's already laid. It's really important to understand that as we go through Scripture verse by verse, that everything we're going to talk about today has the last two weeks in mind, has verses 1 through 11 and 12 through 17 in mind. In fact, if you missed one of those messages, I really encourage you to go back to our website or go to our iTunes podcast and, and listen to that so you can catch up. So because we have covered all this ground, uh, we're diving right in. It might seem like this doesn't quite fit. But it fits on the foundation that Paul has already laid. He says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 
And so this, these two verses here, uh, we're also going to look at them in the book of Ephesians, because Ephesians, Paul expands this. But he's really getting at this idea that, that wives communicate their love and devotion best by taking a submissive role. And I know that's not real popular in today's culture, and we haven't heard a whole lot about it, uh, but there is, that we're going to dig into that a little bit. And that husbands must make sure that they're communicating their love to their wives in a way that's not harsh, but is self-sacrificing and puts the wife first. And really, you know, a lot have been made of this uh, by a, a pastor and psychologist named Emerson Egrich. He wrote a book called Love and Respect. And so we're going to talk about some of the principles. But if, if this is an area where you think you might be able to grow, I would strongly encourage you to read that book. You can purchase it at, uh, at, at Christian bookstores. You can push, purchase it online if you need to. Uh, you can get it on a digital device. But it's got a lot of really good uh, content that will help you. And I use this teaching and this content whenever I'm meeting with people who are going to be getting married in order to help put some tools in the toolbox. Because he recognized, as he would have counseling sessions with men and women whose marriages were in trouble, he said it's almost like they're speaking two different languages. And so every marriage has got a chance, at least, at being bilingual being bilingual. And so if I were to say to you, I practiced this so many times, if you have a Dutch background, you might know that I just told you I love you in Dutch. But if you don't have a Dutch background, you don't know that. You just, what did he just say? What was the word? Or maybe, you know, we have a Congolese church that meets with us. And if I were to say, well, nokopenda means I love you in Swahili. And they might recognize that and hear that. But if two people are speaking at each other in two different languages, it doesn't really matter what they're saying if it can't be understood by the other person. And he found that over and over and over, the people that were sitting in front of him in his office and were having trouble with these marriages, he recognized that many times it was like the the wife was saying, no, I love you, I love you, I love you. But the husband wasn't hearing that. And the husband was saying, I love you. But the wife wasn't hearing that. And so getting people to understand that we speak different languages, that men, most men, communicate love and admiration in a language that sounds a lot more like respect. If you think about military or some of the places where where men are, are the vast majority of the people, there's a high honor and respect code, and there's a camaraderie that develops from that. And that women communicate love through nurturing and through uh, the more emotive types of communication that don't always translate for men. And so it's not right or wrong. It's just different. It's not right or wrong. It's not that one is right and the other is wrong. It's just different. We have different ways of communicating to each other. And I'll also, often in those uh, sessions with premarital counseling or with a, a couple that's struggling, I'll recommend a book called The Five Love Languages. And it identifies five different common love languages. And oftentimes, it's that a husband is saying, I love you, in a language that the wife is not receiving as love. We learned a lot about this when we read the book. And I was doing certain things to communicate my love to Heather, but they weren't speaking her love language. And she was doing things things to communicate her love to me, but they were going right over my head. And so once we've figured that out, we could not only be intentional of communicating love in the way that the other person would receive it, but we'd also recognize when the other person was communicating love and receive it as such. Now, some of you will recognize a song that came out in the 1960s, in fact, 1967, and it was the Beatles, and it said, all you need is 
All you need is love, 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 love. Some of you are back there right now, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, in my generation, I heard from the great prophet Phil, the duck commander from Duck Dynasty. And I remember an episode where he said, yeah, all these young whippersnappers talking about all you need is love, all you need is love, all you need is love. Well, I got news for you. One of you better be able to cook or you're going to starve to death. <laughs> right? Love might fill us up emotionally, but it doesn't fill up the stomach very well, does it? And I believe that Emerson Egrich is on to something in his book, Love and Respect, and he points out that Paul would say to us today what he said to the church in Colossae over 2,000 years ago, all you need is love and respect. All you need is love and respect. Now, contemporary and pop psychology has a strong emphasis on love and an opposition to respect and to submission. But remember the words that Paul says to us in Romans chapter 12. He says, no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve what God's perfect, pleasing will is. So when we talk about love and respect, I've got a couple of images that I found online. I did not create these. Uh, They're really, really well done. Uh, Somebody with a graphic arts degree or something created these. But they show a couple of cycles that Emerson Egrich talks about in his book. And this idea that there is a crazy cycle in regards to love and respect. Can we pull that one up, uh, Larry? There's an image that, yeah, there you go, the crazy cycle. So you can see at the top it says, without love... She reacts without respect. And without respect, he reacts without love. Now, this is our fleshly nature. This is our, our automatic response when the brain's on autopilot and, and something happens to me that feels disrespectful. My gut reaction is to respond in a way that might feel unloving. And that's a crazy cycle because you can see that it just spins, right? So without love, she reacts without respect. Without respect, he reacts without love. And it just keeps going. And one negative begets another negative begets another negative. And he points that out and he says that seems hopeless, but it's not because it also spins in the other direction. And so if we bring up the next one, there's an energizing cycle where his love motivates her respect, and her respect motivates his love, and it's energizing, and it's expanding. As he feels respected, he can respond in love, and as she feels love, she can respond in respect, and that cycle just spins in the right direction, and you feel energized, you feel loved, you feel respected and all kinds of wonderful things happen. And oftentimes when I'm sharing this with a couple, I'll get a little hand go up and say, okay, so whose job is it to reverse the cycle? Whose job is it to recognize that the cycle is spinning in the wrong direction and not react the way we naturally react? And I always smile a little bit and say, whoever sees themselves as the most mature is the one who breaks the cycle. So if you see yourself as the most mature in the relationship, then it's your job to even when you feel disrespected or unloved to respond the opposite way. And so it's not 50-50. I tell people all the time, marriage is not a 50-50 relationship. 50-50 marriages end in divorce 50% of the time, probably more than that. It's a 100-100 relationship. It's a 100%, 100% relationship that we choose as husbands to act in love, to follow the command of Scripture and to love our wives 100% of the time, not waking up looking for a reason not to, looking for a reason to be unloving, we wake up and remember the promises we've made, remember the commands of Scripture, pray for the strength to do it if it's difficult, and we choose to show love over and over. And wives, same thing, you choose to submit yourself 
submit. And it's important to understand what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, husbands, subjugate your wives. It doesn't say that. And it doesn't say, husbands, be harsh with them if they deserve it. It doesn't say, love your wife if she's respectful. It doesn't say, be submitted to your husband if he is loving. There's a command to each side. And if each side does their part... It will spin in the right direction. Now, I want to read. I won't be able to comment on it verse by verse, but Paul addresses this subject so much more thoroughly in his letter to the Ephesians. In fact, if you were to take an hour and read the entire book of Colossians and then read the entire book of Ephesians, you would find that there is tremendous overlap, but in most cases, he'll address things a little bit broader in the book of Ephesians. So if you're ever reading through Colossians and you get stuck See if there's a parallel passage in Ephesians that might bring a, shed a little bit of light to that. Here's what he says in verse 21 through 33, the, the last chunk of the chapter in Ephesians chapter 5. It's on page 1823 in your Bibles there. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Sorry, back up, back up. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And so... While he expands on this teaching, I love the way he begins it in verse 21. And he talks about submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I would say you should wake up each day in a submission competition. Just wake up each day in a submission competition where you're going to see if you can submit to each other in a little friendly competition. You know, not in a competitive, you know, no holds barred type of a way. Okay, guys, tone it back just a little bit. But in a way that you say, how can I submit? How can I put this other person first? How can I clothe myself in compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience and put love over all of it in my marriage relationship? How can I do that and choose to show love or show respect as the case may be? Now, we've got to move on to the, the next couple of verses where Paul addresses parents and children. And as we do so, we're going to go on to verses 21 and 20 back in Colossians chapter 3. So flip back over there and we'll look at these couple of verses. And you might be lamenting at this point the fact that I sent the children out to go back there because you might have wanted them to hear Pastor Mark say, verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord, right? If you're a parent, that might be one of the first passages of scripture that you memorized, right? Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, which we can apply to parents, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. And so 
I understand that not everyone here is a parent, but there's some interesting research that indicates that the vast majority of us are somebody's child. And if you happen to be somebody's child, odds are those people are your parents. So we are all in a parent-child relationship. Furthermore, if your parents have children, odds are you're one of them in about 100 out of 100 cases. So you do have these parent-child relationships, and I understand that not all parent-child relationships were were really encouraging, and, and there might have been some, some embittering that went on. And so I would encourage you to look into God's word here and see what are the, what are the things that God is saying to you. Because like marriage, there's much been written in the world around us, much that has been written, both secular and Christian, about parenting. And so it runs the gamut of children are to be seen and not heard, all the way to children are the focus of their parents' lives and everything is devoted to the children and the children's schedules and the children's lives run everything about the family. And somewhere in between, we see Paul's words saying that children are to obey. Children are to obey. But parents, we have a responsibility, too, to make sure that we don't embitter our children lest they become discouraged. And I have a genuine belief that most parents really want to get this right. Most parents really want to get this right. And so uh, one summary statement that you could say that captures both of these verses is that a home built on encouragement is filled with obedience. That a home built on encouragement is filled with obedience. And of course, there are exceptions on both sides. uh, But generally speaking, you train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. That is a truth that bears itself out over and over and over again. And as children are encouraged, and and a love for the Lord is instilled deep within them, then they respond in obedience, both to their parents and to God. Again, Ephesians chapter 6 now will give a little bit of an expansion on this. So I want to read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 to you, and then we'll talk just a little bit about this and how it plays out relationally and uh, move on. But here in chapter 6, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Instead, I'm sorry, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So in both cases, we see this relationship dynamic working out. In both cases, children are exhorted to obey their parents. And in both cases, parents are exhorted to not make it so stinking hard for your kids to obey. And when I looked at this and studied this and thought through this, I thought, you know, this reminds me of the the two cycles. It reminds me of the two cycles that we just talked about in the marriage section. It reminds me of the crazy cycle. Because I've been in the crazy cycle both in a marriage relationship and in a children's relationship. This is my attempt at a professional uh, graphic. You notice it's not quite as sparkly as the last one, but it was free. And uh, this is original content. But the idea is that without encouragement... Children respond without obedience. And without obedience, parents might respond without encouragement. So there is a crazy cycle that may appear or may, you might be reminded of this and reminded of your growing up years, that there was some disconnect between encouragement and obedience. But there's also good news. There's an energizing cycle that we, I have seen played out over and over in my own family and in the families of people that I know. There's an energizing cycle that says that the parent's encouragement motivates the child's obedience, and the child's obedience motivates the parent's 
encouragement. And so you can choose which way you want that to spin. Unless you're thinking, well, whose responsibility is it to reverse the cycle? If we get on the crazy cycle, I'll settle that one for you. It's the parent's responsibility, okay? You're the parent. You're the adult. You have to make this decision, especially if you're dealing with young young children. And so if you're an adult child, and this wasn't the case, and you spent more time growing up on the crazy cycle, or maybe you spend more time in your adult relationship with your parents on the crazy cycle than the energizing cycle, I would encourage you to take the initiative on that, especially if you're a believer in Christ and maybe your parents are not. Take the initiative and see if you can't reverse the cycle and see if there's not some way that you can show honor and respect and obedience, maybe though you're not under the roof anymore, that might motivate their encouragement, that might break down the walls, that might help repair the relationship. And whatever you do, make sure if you have children that you're starting and initiating with encouragement, with grace, with love, with, with the things that your child's heart needs in order to inspire and motivate their obedience to you. So our bottom line, when we take all of this from a 30,000-foot view, is that a heavenly-minded home can do a whole lot of earthly good. And if we want to be raising children and creating homes that will do good in this earth, we need to be heavenly-minded and set our own preferences aside sometimes, surrender ourselves to the commands of Scripture, and choose to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Sometimes we don't want to submit to one another out of reverence for each other, but we can choose, as Ephesians 5.21 says, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And we can choose to be heavenly-minded at home so that we can do a whole lot of earthly good. Just as we said earlier, all of this builds on all of that. When we talk about the first two messages in this series and taking off the old self and putting on the new self and ridding ourselves of sin and recognizing that there are some things that are a part of who we are when we come to Christ that need to become a part of who we were, that they don't belong in the new life that we have with Christ. We take those off. That's the first 11 verses. Then we choose to put on, put on Love and compassion and kindness and gentleness and humility and patience. And we make those a part of who we are. And we live as followers of Christ. And this is not a doism. This is not a list of do's and don'ts. This is not something where you roll up your sleeves and you white knuckle it through life trying to get all of these things right. It's a take off and a put on. And a take off and a put on. And it's cyclical. And it's not like it all happens at the moment of conversion and then you're free and you never have trouble with any relationship ever again. It's that as trouble presents itself, you ask yourself introspectively, what is, what is in me or on me or, or going on in my life that, that is causing this conflict and is there something that needs to go? And then you take that off and you put on what God says to put on and we take off. Kind of like your bottle of shampoo in your shower. Have you ever read the instructions? Most of us don't need instructions for shampoo. But just in case somebody does, they've printed them on there. And do you know what they say? Lather, rinse, repeat, right? So theoretically, you should never leave the shower. You should just lather, rinse, repeat. Lather, rinse, repeat. Lather, rinse, repeat. But there's an assumption there that you're going to lather, rinse, maybe repeat if you need to. And then you're going to go out and live life a little bit. And when your hair gets dirty, you're going to go back and you're going to lather, rinse, 
and repeat. That's much the same way that our, our family of believers works. That's much the same way that our relationship with Christ works. We, we work on something. We get it taken care of. We kind of get it worked out. And then we go live life a little bit. And then something rec- we recognize, ah, there's something not quite right here. And we talk to a pastor. We talk to a friend. We talk to our community group. We talk to somebody that we're close to spiritually. We read God's word. We dive deep into it. Read a book on it. And we say, oh, there's something going on in my life that doesn't fit. And we take that off. And we put on something else. And we lather and we rinse and we repeat. So next time you're washing your hair, I want you to remember Colossians chapter 3. And I want you to remember I'm taking off the old and I'm putting on the new. And I'm going to continue to do that until I become just like Jesus. Because what if? Church, what if? What if we all did this? What if every single home that's a part of Linwood Church, every single marriage, every single parent-child relationship lived out these characteristics, followed these exhortations that Paul gives us? What if we did that and did it perfectly just in this one church? What kind of an impact would that have on the world around us? What would it have, what kind of impact would it have on your daily life? And it's not high-minded idealism. It's a progress. And you start somewhere and you move forward with that. And so as we move to a time of response, I want to remind you that God has a vision for your life. He has a vision for your life, and it's that your life would be rich and satisfying. Rich and satisfying. That we'd be filled with abundance. That you would hear his voice and you would follow him. And so my encouragement to you today as we respond is that you would respond to him in faith. In faith to the words that you have heard. In faith to the the inclinations that his spirit has given your spirit And whether that means making a commitment to respond differently in one or more of your relationships or to share this information with somebody you know who's struggling in their marriage or in their parenting or maybe you've heard something that has helped you to see that God does have a vision for your life and it starts with you responding in faith to his invitation to be a child of God, to express faith in him, to say, I'm going to accept your payment as the penalty, for the payment of my sins. I'm going to accept your death on the cross, and I'm going to put my life completely in your hands. Whatever God is saying to you, whatever the Spirit of God is whispering to you, I encourage you to respond in faith today. There are altars that are prepared for you if you want to come and just pray by yourself. You can come down and kneel before or sit on one of these altar benches in the middle. If you'd like somebody to pray with you, to put a hand on your shoulder and to pray for you, you can go to one of the outside altars. And somebody will come, a board member, an elder, somebody who's on our prayer team will see you and move towards you and just put a hand on your shoulder. And if you'd like to interact with them just a little bit and pray with them, you're welcome to do that as well. We're going to respond now. I invite you to pray with me as we do. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness towards us. Thank you for your word which instructs us. Thank you for your spirit which convicts us. May we be a people who respond in faith whenever conviction comes. May we be a people who respond to your word when it calls out the best in us. May we be a people who are heavenly minded in our homes, focused on you and on your word and what it encourages and exhorts us to do. Help us to be a people who submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. And so, Lord, in these next few precious moments, I pray that your spirit will have free reign to accomplish your purposes 
in the lives of your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.